again. Welcome to the February 2009 Respiratory Care Podcast. In this issue, we publish the second group of papers from the journal conference, Non-Invasive Ventilation and Acute Care, Controversies and Emerging Concepts. Sarah, tell us more about these papers. Meta et al. from Mount Sinai Hospital and the University of Toronto present Non-Invasive Ventilation in Patients with Acute Cardiogenic Pulmonary Edema. Acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema is a common cause of respiratory failure that necessitates endotracheal intubation. In some patients, intubation and its attendant complications can be avoided with non-invasive ventilation. Both continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation have been evaluated in patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Compared to conventional treatment, both of these therapies improve vital signs and physiologic variables and reduce intubation rate in patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Both continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation appear to be well tolerated and are not associated with any serious adverse events. Initial concern that non-invasive ventilation may be associated with a greater risk of myocardial infarction than continuous positive airway pressure was laid to rest by later studies. Despite a physiologic rationale that non-invasive ventilation should offer greater benefit than continuous positive airway pressure, non-invasive ventilation has not been found to offer any advantages regarding intubation rate or mortality when compared with continuous positive airway pressure. Non-invasive ventilation to shorten the duration of mechanical ventilation is by Epstein from Tufts University in Boston. Non-invasive ventilation successfully treats primary respiratory failure in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, acute pulmonary edema, and, in some patients, hypoxemic respiratory failure. Increasingly, clinicians have applied non-invasive ventilation in an effort to shorten the duration of mechanical ventilation by facilitating weaning and preventing or treating post-extubation respiratory failure. Randomized controlled trials indicate that non-invasive ventilation may be an effective weaning tool in a subset of patients with acute on-chronic respiratory failure from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and that applying immediate non-invasive ventilation to extubated patients at high risk for extubation failure improves outcomes by decreasing the need for re-intubation. In contrast, there is mixed evidence about the effectiveness of non-invasive ventilation to treat established post-extubation respiratory failure. Non-invasive ventilation appeared to be ineffective in heterogeneous patient populations in some randomized trials that enrolled relatively few patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and a case control study found that non-invasive ventilation decreased the need for re-intubation in this group. Therefore, as with primary therapy, non-invasive ventilation should be considered for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and post-extubation respiratory distress. Next is the paper, 
Novel Uses of Non-Invasive Ventilation by Bendit from the University of Washington. Non-invasive ventilation and continuous positive airway pressure have been used in various unusual settings to assist breathing. Non-invasive ventilation is now frequently used to treat exacerbations of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and chronic respiratory failure in neuromuscular disease. This paper discusses continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation for post-operative hypoxemia, preventing intubation in high-risk bronchoscopy, respiratory failure in pandemics, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and respiratory support during percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube placement. Kasmeric from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School in Boston presents Should Non-Invasive Ventilation Be Used with the Do Not Intubate Patient? Most of the large quantity of data on non-invasive ventilation in acute respiratory failure is from patients who want all possible treatments and life support. Few data are available on non-invasive ventilation in patients who have elected specific limits on life support and treatments, for example, patients with do not intubate orders and patients who are near the end of life and will receive comfort measures only. The most critical issue regarding non-invasive ventilation in these patients is informed consent. The patient must be informed of the risks and potential benefits of non-invasive ventilation and must consent to this therapy. We have few data on patients' attitudes about non-invasive ventilation at the end of life. Data from cancer patients at end of life suggests that they may want to maintain control over care decisions and may want treatment that delays death long enough so that they may put their affairs in order. If informed consent and control of care decisions is assured, then non-invasive ventilation can be appropriate in patients who are do not intubate and comfort measures only to reverse an acute respiratory failure that is not necessarily life-terminating, or to improve patient comfort, or to delay death. How to Initiate a Non-Invasive Ventilation Program, Bringing the Evidence to the Bedside, is by Hess from the Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. Non-invasive ventilation is underutilized despite robust evidence supporting its use in appropriately selected patients with acute respiratory failure. Diffusion of non-invasive ventilation into practice requires that clinicians view it as better than invasive ventilation, that it is perceived as compatible with existing approaches to mechanical ventilation, that it is not too difficult to apply, that it is trialable, and that its results are visible. Barriers to the use of non-invasive ventilation include lack of awareness of the evidence, lack of agreement with the evidence, lack of self-efficacy, unrealistic outcome expectations, and the inertia of previous practice. A flexible, tireless, enthusiastic, and knowledgeable clinical champion is important when initiating an NIV program. 
Knowledge and training are also important. Ideally, the training should be one-on-one -on -one and hands-on to the extent possible. Adequate personnel and equipment resources are necessary when implementing the program. Guidelines and protocols may be useful as educational resources to avoid clinical conflict and consolidate authority. When initiating a non-invasive ventilation program, it is important to recognize that non-invasive ventilation does not avoid intubation in all cases. Success often improves with experience. The available evidence suggests that non-invasive ventilation is cost-effective. For optimum success, the multidisciplinary nature of the application of non-invasive ventilation must be recognized. The program should be a quality improvement initiative. Following these principles, a successful program can be initiated in any acute care setting. Complications of Non-Invasive Ventilation in Acute Care is by Gay from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The use of non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure has become widespread, but with the newfound beneficial treatments come complications. There is credible, although somewhat disparate, evidence to support the concept that, compared to invasive ventilation, non-invasive ventilation can reduce the incidence of infectious complications. In selected populations, nosocomial pneumonia appears to be significantly less common with non-invasive ventilation than with endotracheal intubation. Complications of non-invasive ventilation range from minor complications, such as mask-related difficulties, to serious complications such as aspiration and hemodynamic effects. Evidence shows that if non-invasive ventilation is inappropriately applied for too long, the consequences may lead to death, presumably due to excessive delay of intubation. Despite apparently similar costs of treatment for patients with equivalent severity of illness, there is substantially less reimbursement for non-invasive ventilation than for intubation. The use of sedation in non-invasive ventilation has not been systematically studied, and sedation is generally underutilized to avoid complications. Do not intubate patients pose a special ethical dilemma with regard to non-invasive ventilation because it may conflict with a pre-existing directive not to use life support measures in the terminally ill patient. Finally, the conference is summarized by Calais from the University of California in San Francisco. This journal conference brought together experts on non-invasive ventilation to discuss and debate the advances in evidence and technology over the past decade. A major impetus for the conference was that many institutions have not systematically integrated non-invasive ventilation into their clinical practice, despite mounting high-level evidence supporting its effectiveness. Non-invasive ventilation clearly improves outcomes for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema when instituted as a first-line therapy.
Although the evidence is less persuasive, initial intervention with non-invasive ventilation might also benefit a carefully selected subset of patients with acute lung injury, as well as those who are immunocompromised with acute respiratory failure. The papers from this journal conference provide an informative guide for clinicians attempting to implement NIV in their institutions. Acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema is a common cause of acute respiratory failure. The paper by Meta discusses the evidence supporting the use of non-invasive ventilation in this setting. Both continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation have been used in patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, and both improve vital signs, physiologic variables, and reduce the need for endotracheal intubation. Interestingly, the available evidence shows that non-invasive ventilation does not offer any advantages regarding intubation rate or mortality when compared with continuous positive airway pressure. However, there is also no risk of harm for non-invasive ventilation compared with continuous positive airway pressure in patients with acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Because the same equipment is typically used for continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation, the choice between these techniques is usually based on clinician preference and patient response. Another area of interest in the use of non-invasive ventilation is to shorten the duration of invasive mechanical ventilation. As reviewed by Epstein, randomized controlled trials indicate that non-invasive ventilation may be an effective weaning tool in a subset of patients with acute on chronic respiratory failure from chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. For this application, patients are extubated directly to non-invasive ventilation. Non-invasive ventilation may also be useful in patients with high risk for extubation failure. Here again, patients are extubated directly to non-invasive ventilation. However, the evidence of effectiveness of non-invasive ventilation to treat established post-extubation respiratory failure is unclear. In the setting of established post-extubation respiratory failure, non-invasive ventilation should probably be considered only for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. In addition to established uses such as an exacerbation of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema, there are also several novel uses of non-invasive ventilation. Bendit describes the use of continuous positive airway pressure and non-invasive ventilation for post-operative hypoxemia, preventing intubation in high-risk bronchoscopy, respiratory failure in pandemics, obesity hypoventilation syndrome, and respiratory support during percutaneous endoscopic gastrostomy tube placement. An area of much controversy is the use of non-invasive ventilation in the patient who has advanced directives of do not intubate. As pointed out by Kazmarek, the most critical issue regarding non-invasive ventilation in these patients is informed consent. If informed consent and control of care decisions are assured, then non-invasive ventilation can be appropriate in patients who are do not intubate and comfort measures only. In this setting, non-invasive ventilation is used to reverse acute respiratory failure that is not necessarily life-terminating or to improve patient comfort or to delay death for reasons such as to transfer the patient from hospital to home or to give distant family members time to reach the patient's bedside. 
Non-invasive ventilation is underutilized despite robust evidence supporting its use in appropriately selected patients with acute respiratory failure. Hess addresses the issue of how to initiate a non-invasive ventilation program. There are a number of barriers to the use of non-invasive ventilation that must be overcome in order for the program to be successful. In this paper, a number of pragmatic suggestions are made to implement a successful non-invasive ventilation program in any acute care setting. Gay addresses the issue of complications of non-invasive ventilation. Although the use of non-invasive ventilation for acute respiratory failure has become widespread, there are nonetheless potential complications of this therapy. One complication that is avoided with the use of non-invasive ventilation is the risk of nosocomial pneumonia. Most complications, such as facial injury due to the mask, are minor, although others, such as aspiration and hemodynamic compromise, can be more serious. Evidence shows that, if non-invasive ventilation is inappropriately applied for too long, the consequences may lead to death, presumably due to excessive delay until intubation. Sedation is probably underutilized during non-invasive ventilation. Although not a clinical complication, there may be less reimbursement for non-invasive ventilation than for invasive mechanical ventilation. The conference summary by Calais ties together each of the presentations from this conference. Non-invasive ventilation clearly improves outcomes for patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease exacerbation and acute cardiogenic pulmonary edema when instituted as a first-line therapy. Although the evidence is less persuasive, initial intervention with non-invasive ventilation might also benefit a carefully selected subgroup of patients with acute lung injury as well as those who are immunocompromised with acute respiratory failure. The papers from this journal conference provide an informative guide for clinicians attempting to implement non-invasive ventilation in their institutions. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.